think this is the where we want to be here. Road's rough. Now, if we just don't get chased by the clan or uh, Satanists with flashlights. Oh, that's that's it. That's the skull rock. Yeah, the baby cage. Yeah, back up a little Check this out. everyone this is gaz and welcome to bizarro aficionado we wanted to do something different and something special for halloween so this was our my first time our first time the crew's first time going out and recording on location his first time really utilizing the uh zoom 54n pro and uh we ran into some issues uh, once we got back even though with uh earphones and everything it sounded great in the field once i got back loaded it into editing software it was almost inaudible so it's taken a while to get together and everything but i think it still really turned out cool and uh we'll see what you guys think it was kind of it was a fun time it was fun to get out of the studio and not just sit here and wondering how we're going to fit multiple people in my small little studio and so it was fun just to get out there get on site do the show somewhere different, and uh, I think you're really going to like it. So uh, just sit right back, and uh, I'll see you on the other side. Hey Bizarros, I'm Gaz Morgan and it's Halloween! And on this episode, we'll be recording from Devil's Road near the Colt House in Chadsford, PA. I'm here with my buddy Dennis. What's up? Yo. And we'll be talking about the history and folklore of Devil's Road. And if we don't get run off by black SUVs, white pickup trucks full of KKK members. Angry dogs. Angry dogs, roaming Satanists with flashlights. Or the cops. We'll be talking about some lesser-known and very bizarro unsolved murders. But before we begin, I'd like to thank all my listeners for tuning in and uh, giving my podcast a chance. I really am thankful. I I've had people that are tuning in from the northern territories of Canada to Cambodia, from Denmark to the UK to Australia and even the Philippines, and of course right here in the good old U.S. of A. So to all of you out there listening, welcome to Bizarro Aficionado. So, uh, Dennis, here we are. Let me, let me give him a little background on Devil's Road, and then maybe you can tell me about some things you've heard or experienced. Maybe we will get run off by some Satanists or uh, something cool like that might happen. Sure. Or we'll just look like two weird bearded dudes sitting on the side of a wooded road. And recording ourselves trespassing, so <laughs> that'd be fun. I never claim to be smart, I just have a podcast. But yeah, we're out here, it's, it's kind of like any other road. You know, it's just very wooded, and uh, as I'll explain in the history, it's got weird things that may or may not just be self-fulfilling prophecy. But uh, Kosari Road is kind of this long, curvy, and narrow road, and it's located just above the Delaware border in the town of Chadsford, PA. And the road has such a haunting history that it's now known as Devil's Road. Even more, it's so famous that the woods surrounding it were actually used to shoot the blockbuster movie The Village by uh, M. Night Shyamalan Lama. Sure. Lama. Ding dong. Ding dong. M. Night Shyamalan. But uh, the legend of the road begins with the story of a mansion located in the forest, and locals call it the Colt House. 
It was once owned and operated by the wealthy DuPont family. Now, see, we always heard it was the DuPont caretaker's house. Really? Yep. I think I did see something like that because there's like multiple uh, buildings on that property, which I'm not sure everyone can even agree which property it is. But uh, the Stone Mansion did house a cult of some kind, as locals would tell us, and it was common for the DuPont family members to marry their cousins in that house. Really? I mean, they just went to that house to secretly marry their cousins? We're Zoomy Town. That's where Zoomy Town. That'll be next episode. <laughs> so they would do that so the family's wealth would stay in the family, <clears throat> and others dismissed the notion entirely, pointing to the fact that the house was home to Satanists, because that much more sense. And KKK members, I don't know, at the same time? or And they only wanted to rid the world of what they considered impurities. I, I love lore. Now, the few that have gotten close to the property had observed the guardhouse, maybe that's what it is, with red trucks. There have been numerous reports of people being trailed by these trucks, whose headlights remain off with no driver to be seen. I'm not sure you would see the driver if the lights were off. But this, of course, has fueled rumors of supernatural vehicles, when in fact it may simply just be security hired to guard these $1.5 and $2 million home and estates. Now, the strange thing about the cult house is that it is considered to have these natural wonders located around the house, which supposedly can't be explained other than by the work of dark magic. For one, the stretch of trees located on that section of road grow to face away from the home, and upon close inspection, it's easy to discern that the trees which have power lines threading through their branches were actually cut on the roadside by power companies so that the wealthy residents of Cosart Road wouldn't have to be inconvenienced by a power outage like a bunch of plebeians like us during a storm. Now, the odd phenomenon with the trees stop occurring about a quarter of a mile past the Colt House's location, and other trees in the area resemble skulls and were rumored to be the dumping locations of DuPont babies who were born disabled. What were they called? They were called uh, baby cages, I think they were called. One particular tree, I think, was called the baby cage. Baby cage. Then over time, the trees devoured the bodies and took the shape of the child's skull, which is much bigger than the, I mean, much smaller than the tree. But apparently the tree has since been cut down in order to lessen the amount of teens and adult bearded men doing podcasts cruising up and down the road at night. Now, the tree was considered, uh, the skull tree, had grown up and over a large boulder, and the roots would come down. And it, from pictures, and I'll try to put some in the links to them in the show notes, and it really did kind of look like the profile of a skull in there. Um, it caused kind of like a semi-hollow space between the rock and the tree base, resembling, you know, this gaping skull that I guess you could jam a baby in there if you were an inbred wackadoo DuPont living on an old mansion somewhere, I guess. But uh, many people have made their way to Devil's Road to uncover the mystery behind the road and the DuPont family, just like us dumbasses tonight. Because the land is private property and the forest is littered with no trespassing signs, and because we like not being shot by some crazy security guard, we'll be staying in the truck. Well, unless we see something cool like, you know, clan members that need their ass kicked or, you, you know. You might be staying. You might be. <laughs> I'm going to send Dennis out to chase clan members if we see them. Those who usually make the trek tell one of two stories. They're either chased out by guards carrying large bright flashlights and driving huge black trucks. Or dogs. Like or dogs, are. like we'll hear from Dennis. Or they see and hear things that cannot be explained. These voices are thought to be the demons called upon by the DuPont family to guard their secrets and their fortune. Or the devil himself, which we may have met tonight at dinner. So we go in to get dinner at Kid Shaleen's <laughs> Half Price Burger Night. We did meet Papa Lick, but didn't we? Yeah, and we get sat down with a very nice African-American man. We only say that because of the what transpires and why we're calling him Papa Legba. But he's telling us, you know, don't ever skimp. You know, don't ever cut corners. Don't get the turkey burger. Get a full burger. Get this one with the egg and the brisket. And the, <laughs> and the bacon. And the bacon and the extra <laughs> cheese on it. And we're just kind of talking to him. And then he stops, looks at us gravely and goes, maybe I'll see you later at the, at cross the crossroads. Roads. Papa Legba. That yeah, was pretty cool. But we came to a couple crossroads and there was no Papa Legba, so I was a little disappointed. But the Maybe night he is was young. Pissed off that we didn't get the burger he suggested. Well, we didn't get the turkey. Give us a little. <laughs> but over time, dead animals and crosses have been found on the road because dead animals on a road is rare, especially on a windy, rickety, curvy ass wood road. But 
I, I digress. Um, a lot of spray-painted symbols litter the trees and the road, but I digress. So further in the woods, they say, up a deeply wooded hillside stands a massive stone mansion known as the Cold House, which Delaware residents insist was once owned by a member of the DuPont family. Now, it is near an area called Winterthur, which was a DuPont estate, and that did span a huge difference, actually all the way to Brandywine Park. It was all part of that same dairy estate. That's a nice little house, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice little home. I don't. It's a shame people had to live in that kind of poverty. Delaware residents insist that it was once owned by the Duponts, and the cult house naturally housed a cult of some kind, as the story goes. But the nature of its ceremonies remains vague, even by the standards of the local rumor mill. So fans of the plucratic conspiracy theory spin wild stories of DuPont family members marrying their cousins in the house so that the family's wealth would stay in the family and then using the place to hide any inbred spawn these unnatural unions produce. The less fanciful rumors fall back on the old favorites like we said, Satanists and the Ku Klux Klan. Because if it's one place that you see a lot of Ku Klux Klan, it's among one, two, and three million dollar estates, not toothless jackasses in the woods. <laughs> the house's windows are said to be cross-shaped, or among the camp that believes in the Satanist rumors, inverted cross-shaped. To further ruin this story for you, the stone house is at 935 Cosart Road. Don't go there and bother these people. And it's actually listed on many realtor sites, and you can easily see the house and the inside, and it's rather charming. And uh, it could be yours if you have a spare $1,625,000. Is that all it is? That's it. We're going to get two. We can live next to each other. Cool. I'm going to be, I'll start my, uh, my Patreon and you guys are going to have to get paying because I don't have uh, 1625000 pesos. If you got 1625000 viewers and charged them all a dollar a month, you'd be set. I'll be 90 before I have that many viewers. <laughs> so what was your experience? Like you said you had experiences on that road. <clears throat> well, when I was a kid back in high school, a bunch of us piled into a pickup truck and drove to the cult house. I rode in the back and... In the open back of the truck like we used to back then? Alcohol was involved. As it always um, is. So I don't remember a whole lot about it. <laughs> I do remember that the windows did look like they had upside down crosses in them, but I think it really? was just because of the shape of the panes of the windows. Um, so you're saying the shape of the windows being upside down crosses is what made the windows look like upside down crosses? Yes. <laughs> I just wanted it was to make the shape sure we were clear. The little dividers in the window panes, I think, is, is why right. it looked that way. When the windows were open, um, we went there on a nice day. So, But uh, it looked like there was a fire pit in the back, and we had heard rumors that you know they burned people. And Maybe the Satanists were all at the there. beach that day. They could have just barbecued in the back in the fire pit. <laughs> I, I mean... Um, we were chased off property by at least two large black dogs with, like, chains and collars. We could you hear the chains rattling. This is during the day. Oh, gotcha. Middle of the day. You know, it was a couple hours after we got out of school, so. Oh, right, right, right. Follow you. Um, that's all of my experience as a kid. Yeah. And then recently uh, went for a drive with a friend, and she and I... On this road, Cossart Road, and she and I both saw a full moon. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, it was like a looked like a a human figure made of mist, kind of just like cruised across the road and then dissipated. Creepy. It was a little odd, but I mean, it was a very misty night, and it could have been a little breeze blowing some across the road. Who knows? But it looked cool. Neat. One thing we always noticed um, when we came down here as a kid and we drove up and down the road is our radio would go out mm. and. Um, from what I understand, there's a lot of naturally occurring um, magnetic iron ore along that road. It's which, common for Delaware for sure. Yeah, and, and it plays havoc. Yep, plays havoc with the radios. So, Well, one of the things we're going to do tonight is discuss some very strange unsolved murders. Because if you're going to be on a dark, spooky, weird road full of clan members, cult members, and inbred wealthy people, we should talk about murder. Sure. So, uh... Do you want to read first or shall I? I'll read. I don't care. All right. What do you got for us? Go with the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Illinois. I wonder why I gave you that one. <laughs> they don't call me Pumbaa for nothing. <laughs> On September 2nd, 1944, as the Second World War was in progress in Europe and the Pacific, some strange happenings were reported in the small town of Mattoon, Illinois. The front page of the town's newspaper described a mysterious attack by an anesthetic prowler the previous evening 
Was he just boring? Is that why he was the anesthetic prowler? Yes, he would sneak into their house and he would uh, read the murder stories we have tonight for everyone. <laughs> He's like the psychic vampire. On what <laughs> we're we're going to be the, the anesthetic podcast. <laughs> a young housewife named Aileen Kearney had been laying in bed reading the newspaper when she noticed a strong, sweet odor seeping into the room. The smell made her and her three-year-old daughter feel ill, but when Aileen tried to get out of bed, she found that she could not move her legs. Aileen's sister was staying at the house, and upon learning of the strange odor and its ill effects, she dashed to a neighbor's house to have them contact the phone. When the police investigated, they found nothing out of the ordinary, but when Aileen's husband arrived at home at 2.30 or 12.30 a.m. from his job as a cab driver, he discovered a prowler outside the bedroom window. He gave chase, yet the unknown lurker escaped. When the police were summoned back, they again found nothing. Real or imaginary, the dark figure would soon come to be known as the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, and this ambiguous individual will be blamed for dozens of such attacks in the following weeks. Such is how the story was told in the Daily Journal Gazette the following day under the headline Anesthetic Prowler on the Loot. The subheading ominously declared Mrs. Kearney and Daughter First Victims. In using the term first, it seemed that either the Gazette reporters had an uncanny predictive ability or they had a flair for the dramatic. In the days following the news report, three, and other citizen, three other citizens came forward claiming that they had been victims of the gassings before the event at the Kearney House. People spoke of lightheadedness, paralysis, upset stomach, and vomiting, accompanied by a sickly sweet odor. A few days later, on September 5th, Mrs. Carl Cordes reported finding a small wet cloth on her porch. Her name was Carl? Yeah, that's what it says, buddy. <laughs> Mrs. Carl Cordes. Mrs. Carl Cordes of the, so, of the, sure, of the Mattoon Cordeses. Don't you gender assume these people. <laughs> yeah. Don't you do it. <laughs> so Mrs. Carl found the small wet cloth on her porch. <laughs> and when she picked it up, she was overcome by an odor. It was a feeling of paralysis, she reported. My husband had to help me into the house, and what's, soon my lips were swollen. What's that chemical they put on the... They put chloroform? On. Yeah, excuse me, does it smell like chloroform, <laughs> right. Mrs. Carl? <laughs> Who picks up a wet cloth on their porch and sniffs it? Apparently Mrs. Carl. <laughs> Mrs. Carl. <laughs> her throat burned. She began to spit up blood. Oh, my God. Her husband called a doctor, and it was more than two hours before she felt normal again. She was quoted as saying... <laughs> You're a terrible human being. I know. <laughs> Other newspapers quickly picked up the story, and soon the entire country was reading about the Mattoon's rumored mad gasser. That's my Halloween costume next I wish he just spit it on him, so they called him the Spittoon of Mattoon. <laughs> For months, U.S. newspapers had been warning the Americans that the Nazis might employ poison gas and attacks against the civilians. Fake news. So this sort of story sold a lot of newspapers to jittery citizens and Fox News watchers. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Porters of gassings continued and increased daily. On September 8th, the Gazette published an editorial criticizing police for not taking Aaron Kearney's report seriously. Shortly thereafter, 10 Illinois state police officers were assigned to the case, as well as two agents from the FBI. Before long, police began to receive reports of several attacks each night. Many victims reported a tall figure dressed in black fleeing from their property immediately after the attacks, as well as blue vapors and buzzing sounds. Buzzing blue vapors? No. No. That's not normal. The Gazette continued Taco, dot, 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 bell. its coverage as people throughout the... Oh, we can't say Taco Bell, can we? Are we allowed to say Taco I'm gonna Bell? I'm going to demand payment. Taco Taco Bell. But you have to say, is it Taco Bell or is it Taco Bell? Sure. That's an inside joke. That was for you, Rojan. On September 13th, eight days and three dozen victims later... Three dozen. The reports of attacks abruptly halted. Investigators were at a complete loss for an explanation. Careful searches found no chemical evidence of harmful gases. They dissipate. Yeah. Were they really just sitting around looking for... Super I'm not getting any, sir. Genius. And all the victims were completely free of any lingering symptoms. The only suspect ever investigated in the attacks was a man named Farley Llewellyn. Mr. Farley. He must have been a Welshman. That's right. He was a student of chemistry, and he was bitter because he had been ostracized by the community as a suspected homosexual. No. He seemed a compelling suspect because he had the means and the motive 
and most of the alleged attacks occurred near his home. But even after he was placed under constant surveillance, the reports of the attacks continued. No, oh, they picked the wrong guy. They did. To this day, it is unclear who was responsible for the attacks, if anyone. Some have postulated that pollutants from nearby factories and industrial plants may have been the cause. In 1908? Was this 1908? I don't remember when this one was. Sure. I don't think I put it on there. I don't think so. The official investigation ultimately dismissed the Mad Gasser as an artifact of mass hysteria fed by the newspapers, which is certainly not outside the realm of possibility. It wouldn't and be that. Carl. And Miss Carl. Yes. The oh. wet cloth sniffer. The wet cloth sniffer. Of Matuna. <laughs> yeah, I, I did read a little bit gasser. about this, and I know that there's some theories. Uh, one of my favorite was that it's an interdimensional traveler, and that's why they couldn't find them. That's possible. Then the other one is that the whole thing was just mass hysteria, but they don't know. All right. What do I have here? Let's see. I have uh, Edgar Allan Poe and the mysterious murder of New York beauty Mary Rogers. Her death fascinated Poe and remains a mystery to this day. Edgar Allan Poe's 1842 murder mystery novella, The Mystery of Marie Roget, tells the story of Marie Roger, a beautiful young Parisian woman whose body is found battered and bruised in the Seine River. The tale captivated audiences during his day, perhaps because, save for the victim's name and the location of her death, the story was true. In creating a story, Poe explicitly borrowed details from the real-life slaying of Mary Cecilia Rogers, a young New Yorker known to many as the beautiful cigar girl who worked in a downtown tobacco shop. Born in 1820, Mary was the the only daughter of a widowed boarding house owner. After Mary's father died when she was 17, the young woman took up a job at John Anderson's tobacco shop. She soon began earning a more than common wage as she so easily attracted new customers into the store. Mary was so well known for her beauty, in fact, that patrons traveled to the tobacco shop solely to see the beautiful cigar girl at work behind the counter. Daniel Stashhauer notes in his book The Beautiful Cigar Girl, Mary Rogers, Edgar Allan Poe, and the Invention of Murder, that every one from journalists to famed writers Washington Irving and James Fenimore Cooper sought out the shop. One scribe was so moved by Mary's presence that he immortalized her in a poem. As Starhauer puts it, Mary achieved a curious form of celebrity, becoming perhaps the first woman in New York to be famous for being talked about. Then in 1841, tragedy struck. On Sunday, July 25th, Mary told her mother and fiancé, Daniel Payne, that she was going to visit family in New Jersey. She would be back the next day, she said. When Mary failed to return by Monday afternoon, her mother assumed it was due to nasty weather. But when the sky darkened and Mary was nowhere to be seen, her mother grew worried. Strangely, this wasn't the first time Mary had been reported missing. Just three years before, the New York Sun reported that Mary Rogers had vanished. She reappeared a few days later, and many thought it was a publicity stunt by the newspapers to increase their readership. This time, however, it was different. On Wednesday, July 28th, Mary's body was found in the Hudson River near Hoboken, New Jersey, of course. Um, a group of men had spotted something strange in the river rode out to it, and dragged back what soon would be identified as Mary's battered body. The young woman's dress and hat were ripped, and she appeared to have endured a struggle. Speculation swirled about what had transpired. Some said Mary died during a botched abortion and her body was discarded in the Hudson. Others blamed the fiancé Daniel Payne, suggesting that a heated quarrel erupted between the young lovers and ended in death. Still others contended that she had been caught up in gang-related violence. So with some theories swirling, Edgar Allan Poe stepped in. Using his technique of ratiocination, a thought process guided by rational reasoning and deliberate inference, Poe wrote The Mystery of Marie Roget, the novella featured Poe's legendary protagonist, C. Auguste Dupin. Changing just a few key details and having Marie work in a perfumery, Poe created the story of Mary's murder, publicly attempting to sort through the details alongside police detectives. The author hoped to process the case through his writing, unraveling its mystery and possibly revealing the truth of Mary's fate. Many consider it to be the first true crime novel, a fiction piece of writing, based on a real-life crime. So that is the case of Edgar Allan Poe and 
the true story behind Marie Roget. So, all right, let me let me do this uh, really long one here, actually, and then I can stop talking and make you talk a whole bunch. So this one's a little more complicated and involved. It's called Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm? Was a woman found dead in a witch elm tree in wartime England a Nazi spy? One Sunday morning in April 1943, during the dark days of World War II, Four teenage boys made a terrifying discovery that would baffle the police and remain a mystery for over 70 years. The boys were searching for bird nests at Hagley Woods. Hagley? Odd. A private estate near Birmingham in England's Midlands. What was that? Somebody with no muffler. Oh, that was weird. Climbing up an ancient old witch elm, 15-year-old Bob Farmer saw something truly terrible. Looking down the hollowed-out trunk, Farmer noticed a strange object staring back at him from the dark interior. The teenager was horrified when he, really, when he realized it was a human skull. A clump of hair clung off the remaining flesh on the forehead, and two crooked teeth gaped out of the mouth. After the boys had a good look at their horrific find, they put it back in the tree and left the woods. They agreed amongst themselves not to tell anyone about their discovery. They were trespassing in the woods, poaching no less. If they told the police, they could be in big trouble. But one of the boys was so upset by what he saw, he told his father and the police were soon called to the area. What they found inside the old tree trunk was bizarre. The skeleton of a young woman, minus one of her hands, a piece of taffeta was stuffed in the skull's mouth, some scraps of clothes with the labels cut out, battered shoes, and a gold ring were also found in the tree. Nearby were the bones of a woman's hand, scattered next to the tree. The police were troubled by the unusual circumstances of the woman's death. Were sinister forces at work in Hagley Wood? Pathologist James Webster was able to determine the victim had died around 18 months ago was around 35 years of age, with mousy-colored hair, was five feet tall, had given birth in the past, and had irregular teeth. Webster could find no obvious injuries and concluded that she had probably died as a result of the cloth stuffed in her throat. I wonder if it was actually a moist cloth found on Mrs. Carl's porch. <laughs> Soon he also believed she had been placed in the tree shortly after death, because the space was so tight inside, it would not have fitted once rigor mortis had set in. From Webster's work, the police managed to create a detailed description of the woman, but no one came forward with a search of 3,000 missing person cases around the country had all proven fruitless. A nationwide search of dental practices also drew a blank. The woman had had dental work done within a year of her death, but there was not a trace of her presence at any surgery. The flurry of press soon faded. The travails of the war were at the center of most people's thoughts. The area had suffered three years of Luftwaffe bombing, and life was very hard. As Christmas 1943 approached, people had forgotten about the strange case of the woman in the tree, until the graffiti started. Who put Lubella down the witch elm, the first one said. Then Hagley Wood Bella, soon it settled on who put Bella in the witch elm. The graffiti appeared on walls throughout the West Midlands, seemingly by the same hand. Someone, it seemed, knew more than they were letting on. From then on, the woman found in the old elm at Hagley would be known as Bella, even by the police. But they were never able to find who was responsible for the graffiti, and were no closer to answering its questions. Was a writer of the graffiti taunting the police? Had they killed Bella or knew who had? Folklorist Margaret Murray suggested Bella may have been killed in an occult ceremony, the removal of the hand typical of a black magic execution. Uh, the theory that Bella had fallen victim to a coven of witches was popular for a while, but with the absence of any genuine leads from the police, the case eventually went cold. It wasn't until 1953 when journalist Wilfred Byford Jones started to write about the old case in the Wolverhampton Express and Star that interest was revived. Byford Jones would soon receive the first solid lead in nearly a decade. A letter signed by Anna offered new details of what had happened to Bella. 
According to the letter, Bella had been murdered because of her involvement with a Nazi spy ring operating in the Midlands in the early 1940s. The spy theory seemed more rooted in reality than talk of witchcraft. Hundreds of German spies were captured in Britain during the war, and the Midlands would have been a valuable source of intelligence because of its prevalence of munitions factories. Was Bella in the Witch Elm part of a Nazi ring? So this is the evidence for the spy ring. It starts with the journalist Wilfred Byford Jones receives this letter all right, in 1953 from Anna Claverly, and she's the one that was claiming that Bella had died after getting involved with a World War II Nazi spy ring. So finish your articles um, with the Witch Elm crime by all means. They are interesting to your readers, but you will never solve the mystery, said Anna. The one person who could give the answer is now beyond the jurisdiction of earthly courts. The affair is closed and involves no witches, black magic, or moonlight rites, end quote. Byford Jones was naturally intrigued. Whoever wrote those words clearly had first-hand knowledge of what had happened. After subsequent correspondence, Anna revealed herself to be Una Mossop and told the full story. Her husband Jack had worked at a local munitions factory in the early 1940s and had come into some money after meeting a mysterious Dutchman, as one does. Jack later admitted to Una that the Dutchman was a Nazi agent. Jack had been passing him information about local industrial sites, which is damn nice of him which in turn was passed to another agent posing as a cabaret performer at local theaters. The Midlands had been bombarded by the Luftwaffe in the early 40s, and such information would have been invaluable for the Nazis to target their raids, where they would do the most damage to Britain's war effort. One day, Jack met his contact at a pub close to Hagley Wood. He was arguing with a Dutch woman. He ordered Jack yeah, he ordered Jack drive them both to the Clent Hills, but the argument had grown extremely violent and the Dutch agent strangled the woman in the car. Fearing for his own life, Jack helped carry the body into the nearby Hagley Wood, where the pair buried it in the hollow of the old elm tree. Una's husband was apparently so traumatized by the brutal murder of Bella that he had a nervous breakdown, tormented by horrific visions of a woman's skull in a tree. Jack was institutionalized in 1941 and apparently died later that year. The time scales fit quite well with Bella's death. The pathologist had estimated it was about 18 months prior to the body's discovery, which would have placed it in the middle of 1941. The information Una gave Byford Jones was convincing enough that the police and MI5 got involved. According to the journalist, they verified some details of Una's account but were unable to find any of the remaining perpetrators. With the involvement of the intelligence services, some have speculated there may have been a cover-up over the investigation of the information. Just eight years after the war, details of spy rings may have still been classified. The cover-up theory was also bolstered by the curious fact that Bella's remains had gone missing, precluding any further forensic examinations. The story then faded into semi-obscurity. An occasional piece of graffiti would briefly revive interest, but there was no new leads for another 15 years, and a book by historian Donald McCormick. McCormick's Murder by Witchcraft, despite its name, built upon the spiring theory. McCormick had obtained Obware Files, the records of German military intelligence. According to McCormick's information, a Nazi agent by the name of Valera was operating in the Midlands in 1941, and he had a Dutch girlfriend living in Birmingham called Clarabella Dronkers. Now there's a name. Was Clarabella the Bella found in the Witch Elm? Like Bella, she was about 30 years old, and like Bella, she apparently had crooked teeth. And her last name was Dronkers. What more do you need? You're going to find a lady with crooked teeth in a tree. Her last name's going to be Dronkers. Sure. Yeah. What's especially suggestive about the identification is that a real Nazi spy was captured in mid-1942 and executed at Wadsworth Prison on New Year's Eve that year. His name? Johannes Marinus Dronkers. Was Bella this Dutch spy's wife? 
The wedding ring found on her body lends credence to the idea, and if Bella was a foreigner, it would explain why no trace of her could be found in England. It's possible with some kind of love triangle had developed amongst the agents, or that Bella had grown loose-lipped and risked ever revealing their existence to the British authorities. Now, whilst the exact nature of the operation and how this tangle of names and relationships fit together is unclear, the notion that Bella was involved in some way with aspiring seems quite convincing. Further tidbits support the idea. There were several reports in 1940-41 of the Home Guard been alerted to possible agents parachuting into the area around Clarence Hill and Hagley Wood. I've got it. So... Dronkers is parachuting into the area. She uh, has an itch, scratches it, hits the wrong thing, falls out of her chute and wedges herself into the tree. And as she comes into the tree, it cuts off her hand. We have a visitor. People coming down the road and they're just going to drive by because they're probably doing the same thing we are. All right. So the uh, furthermore, the former British soldier told author Ian Topham that he saw n- Nazi files detailing agents that were operating in the Midlands. One operative matching Bella's description was codenamed Clara and had parachuted in the area in 1941. Codenamed Duchess. Right, of course. Now, the next theory is the cabaret singer which you heard me mention earlier. In recent years, newly declassified MI5 files from the war have shed some fresh light on the spy ring theory. One file details the arrest and interrogation of a Czech-born Gestapo agent named Josef Jakobs. Jakobs, who had the dubious distinction of being the last man to be executed at the Tower of London, was captured after parachuting in the Cambridgeshire. And ni- Everyone is dropped. There's Nazis dropping out of the sky in England. Found on Jakobs' person was a photograph of a young woman. She was a cabaret singer and German movie star called Clara Burrell. According to Jakobs, she had been recruited by the Gestapo as a secret agent. Jakob's information checked out, and Burrell was a German cabaret singer and tellingly had worked in Birmingham for several years before the war had ended, or the war had begun. She would have been an ideal candidate for a spy. According to Jacobs, she was due to follow him into England, although after his capture, he thought it unlikely that this had happened. But the timings made sense. Nothing was heard of Burrell again after 1941, the year Bella was thought to have died. If she was not Bella in the Witch Elm, what happened to her? It's not too much of a stretch to see how Clara Burrell may have been remembered as Clara Bella to English audiences. Perhaps someone had even recognized her from pre-war days in Birmingham. The risk of Clara being exposed as a German in England during the middle of the war may have threatened the spying she had been involved in. Could it have led to her permanently silenced and left her to haunt the dark woods of Hagley? Now here's the evidence against aspiring. Now one reason that might tend uh, make people think against the spy theory is the method of death. Bella was found deep in private woodland in an overgrown witch elm tree. It's hard to understand why anyone, least of all a foreign spy, unfamiliar with the locale, would choose this as a burial site. How would they even know such a tree existed? What if she parachuted, died while parachuting, and they had to hide the body? They stuff her in the tree. Her giant, immense one hand wouldn't fit in the tree, so they cut it off. Oh, sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's also loose ends with the spy theory. None of the remaining members of the ring were ever found. Well, they were spies. Despite extensive searches, even today with wartime records declassified, very little light has been shed on the putative spy ring. Recently discovered MI5 documents have prompted the theory that Bella may have been Josef Jakob's girlfriend Clara Burrell, but this idea has some significant flaws. Pathologist James Webster listed Bella's height as five foot, whereas Burrell was known to be quite a tall woman. And online databases of German musical performers list Burrell's death as 1942, which, if accurate, would rule her out as Bella. Other less exotic theories have been suggested over the years as well. Bella was a prostitute murdered by an angry John or a local barmaid killed by an American GI, except that no one local knew who she was. More far-fetched was that she was a gypsy killed in an occult ritual. 
It's doubtful we'll ever know what really happened at Hagley Wood, but perhaps there is still someone out there, by now very, very old, carrying a dark secret. A few years ago, some graffiti appeared on the 200-year-old Witchbury Obelisk at Hagley Hall. In large block, capital letters, it read, Who put Bella in the Witch Elm? I like the Peggy Hill theory. The, the Peggy Hill theory? Parachute didn't open and she yes. came crashing down. Just came tree. crashing down, landed mysteriously right inside the tree. And her hand popped off. And her hand popped off. And a bird flew away with it. On her head. Or maybe chipmunks took it. Well, you, you see that in graves. They get groundhogs and stuff in there and they'll move stuff around. You have a head down where the feet are and a hand up where the head is and things like that. So what's next? Who killed Hazel Drew? The little-known 1908 murder case that inspired Twin Peaks. Put the date on this one, so that's good. I did. I was thinking. It was in the title. It can happen once or twice. Lucky you got a printout. We We all have that story. The story that haunted and intrigued us as children. The story that opened us up to a different world. To a darkness that many of us still seek out in true crime and horror. I got that from Sesame Street. Got that from Acid. Sesame Street first. Right. It's true. Well, Acid first and then Sesame Street. It could be more interesting. Are we not supposed to talk about drugs, though? I don't know. Sesame Place was hiring an EMT. I almost applied. (laughs) I want to be the resident EMT on Sesame Street. Only if you can dress as Elmo or something. That would be amazing. Mr. Snuffleupagus. Yes. Twin Peaks, the bizarre and brilliant whodunit. Season one was brilliant. Season two was... Then it got too so operate. And I like Billy Zane, but when he came on the show, it was all bad. Yeah, I, I couldn't get past, you know, the, the oil on the cotton balls because the curtain rods were too nice. That was actually funny. It I like kind of funny. The show centers on the small town. Oh, I'm sorry. The show centers on the small town murder of Laura Palmer and the secrets that surface in the wake of her death. Turns out the fictional mystery of Laura Palmer's demise can be traced back to a real-life murder case. Twin Peaks co-founder Mark Frost was loosely inspired by a certain story his grandmother used to tell him as a child while he spent summers with her in rural New York in a place called Sand Lake. The inspiration sprang from a nightmarish little bedtime story my grandmother Betty Calhoun planted in my ear as a young boy, Frost wrote in an essay penned in a Sand Lake newsletter about his grandmother. She told him that a ghost haunted the area of the lake they lived near, but was it just a story? No That's lo- what we're waiting to find out, though. We're, we're working on it, but this is a long one here, buddy. Uh, the whole three pages. That last one I read was like 42 <laughs> pages. Known locally as the Teal Pond Mystery, this ghost story comes from the real murder of a 20-year-old woman named Hazel Drew in 1908. Much like the central character of Twin Peaks murdered teenager Laura Palmer, Hazel Drew's body was found washed ashore. Not only Laura Palmer, but uh, who was the first one? Oh, I forgot about her. What's her name? It was Laura Palmer and Ronette Pulaski were the two. Ronette Pulaski, yeah, but she, yes. But then no, no, she wasn't even the first one. The first, the first one, one that was wrapped up in the plastic that got them all the FBI down there was... Uh, that wasn't Laura? She was in plastic, mm-hmm. too. She was. Yeah, but there but, was someone else. Yeah. You know what? It was uh, Mrs. Carl. <laughs> it was. <laughs> They found all these little cloths in there. Wet. Moist. Sweet Moist cloth. Oh, so however, even though her body was found washed ashore, it was not wrapped in plastic like Laura Palmer's in the pilot episode of Twin Peaks. Yet again, in the pilot episode, was that Laura? I thought it was Laura. That's what they start with. All right. She was fire walking. Got to rewatch it. Yeah. Instead, she was found with a corset string wrapped tightly around her throat, her death caused from blunt force trauma to the back of her skull, much like Laura Palmer. Right. It was this woman, Hazel Drew, who Mark Frost mentioned to co-creator David Lynch. It isn't hard to tell from Lynch's films that he has an obsession with young women and their secret lives. The story of the beautiful young Hazel Drew piqued his interest, especially when Frost revealed what he had found while doing research on a trip back at Sand Lake, hoping to fill in the details he never knew. At the time of her death, last seen picking raspberries on the side of a local road. This image of innocence was shared by her community. And so what was to follow would come as an enormous shock. She had no known boyfriends, but after her murder, 
Police uncovered a great deal of correspondence between Hazel and several different men. Was one of them a coke dealer named Bobby? Only when they were at One-Eyed Jack. I hope James isn't in the picture because I hated that. I fucker. hated James. Just like in Twin Peaks, a lot of what authorities had to go on were the initials of those people Hazel had been meeting in the night or writing to in secret. And just like Laura Palmer, the evidence showed that Hazel Drew lived in a complicated double life. With every lead announced by the police, a new character was added to the tapestry of suspects. There was Frank Smith, a farmhand Hazel had known, but he was cleared with an alibi. Then came Hazel's uncle, William Taylor, who lived within a mile of the lake where Hazel's body was found and was there to help pull her corpse from the water. That was right good of him. Well, if he lived a mile away. He's a good guy. Though the town found him particularly suspect because of his odd behavior. Was he he carrying a log? (laughs) No. And chewing pitch gum. He was known as suicidal suicidal and melancholy. Oh, he had Garmin Bosia then. He did. He was eventually cleared as though as they could find no evidence linking him to Hazel's death. There was another local man known as a halfwit who was said to torture animals. Oh dear. It can't well, be him. <laughs> right. <laughs> as well as a professor said to have employed Hazel. Hazel's mother also mentioned a man from Troy who she believed possessed hypnotic powers, which certainly echoes the occult elements of the Twin Peaks storyline. But of all of them, it was most definitely not the <clears throat> animal-torturing half-wit. Oh, no, never. No, no. The suspicious characters kept coming. A dentist that... This is like... This it, is David Lynch heaven. Suspicious characters. They didn't have to write shit. any of this shit. A dentist that proposed to Hazel. A train conductor. She may have been dating in secret. A local millionaire... Henry Cramroth, Cramroth, who ran a nearby club with an illicit reputation. Why, Jacks? Oh. Rumors of orgies and women being held against their will swirled, swirled around Cramroth's resort, as well as rumors about Hazel's romantic involvement with Cramroth. So Cramroth would be um, the guy that owned the department store, right? Horn. Oh, that, that ben Horn. Ben Horn, yeah. <clears throat> Ultimately, he was also let off, despite witnesses claiming to have heard screams from his establishment around the time of the murder. Although her injuries were consistent with homicide, authorities put forth a different theory, probably meant to placate the community. A newspaper article contained this statement from police. After five days of careful investigation in which many theories have been advanced, a motive for the murder is lacking. Nothing has been learned that would warrant the authorities in making an arrest in connection with the crime. This being the case, the accident theory is advanced. The McAdam Road between Troy and Averill Park is popular with automobilists, and it's also where Leo used to throw the football field with cocaine to the boys. Right, right. A reckless chauffeur speeding along at night may have struck the girl with his car, causing her death. New shoes. (laughs) It's my favorite line of his. Ever. A reckless show. Oh, I read that part already. Rather than face the consequences and knowing the country well, it would have been a comparatively simple matter to have taken the girl's body in the car up to the lonely road towards Taborton. Sure. Taborton. Yeah, okay. And to have thrown her body into the mill pond. The murder of Hazel Drew is still obvious, officially unsolved. Frost told the. Frost told the Washington Post it seemed to be kind of a hastily conducted investigation, probably because the rich guy's money was involved. Right. And because she was a person from not a prominent family. I think you could fairly say, and because there was very little sympathy for female victims of that sort in this time, she may have gotten the short shrift. Shrift. I got nothing. Fuck that is. No, that's a... Lynchian word that we don't understand. Didn't need enough cream corn today, I guess. So I'm in Bozia. One-armed man. We don't see enough one-armed men, do we? Although the story of Hazel's death and the subsequent case 
served as the basis of Twin Peaks, it is certainly far from the actual story. It was more the feeling of the story, the feeling of a small town that felt foreign to Frost, the secrets, the gossip, the closeness of the community that made for even more shocking revelations. The characters. I always lived in either big cities or suburbs in my life, Frost wrote. I'd grow up hearing about people in the mountain who were out of the ordinary, who were a little off-kilter sometimes. So I think all of those stories had an impact on my thinking about folks like this. And I certain, I definitely can remember feeling like, yeah, this is a little bit like the guy who used to live out by the sawmill, or this is one of the hermits that I'd heard about. Super fans flocked to Sand Lake after the announcement of Twin Peaks' return. By now, however, the community is used to people poking around in the woods near the lake, hoping to piece together what happened to the woman who served as inspiration for one of the most iconic victims in television and cinema history, Laura Palmer. Fantastic. I didn't know about any of that. Me either. It's pretty cool. So should we uh, deep six, six these articles and take another ride up and down this road here and see if we can attract some uh, cultist clan member inbred DuPonts? As long as we drive at breakneck speeds and risk our lives. Oh, couldn't have it any other way. Outstanding. It'll be recorded, and I insist upon my death this be edited and uh, placed out for people to mock and listen to. Hell yeah. some coffee and a little break here we are now just turning on to Cossart Road off what was this 52 52 no all right it is dark because it's dark uh, no clan members yet no uh, no inbred DuPonts yet no pickup trucks yet no cult members though it remains to be seen Although, that house looks to only be about 300,000, so there's at least some plebeians here. Nothing, nothing. Some, uh, political signs. destination is on the left. Oh, the Colt House. The entrance to the Colt House. The $1,625,000 Colt House. No clan members. There's a house over there. There's definitely a house way back there and lit up. Kind of sort of up on a hill through some woods. See the see the window panes? See the yeah. little, they look like crosses. They are very you know um narrow. Cruciform. Cruciform, yeah. Oh I see that, see yeah. That, that I see there how people there, can there see isn't a crosses. Top part. So it looks like a cross. Right. When they're open, they're upside down. So they're they're very thin, narrow, long windows, and then the the, the pane divider, you can see very distinctly going from top to bottom, and then on the bottom half, a horizontal bar divider, but you don't see one up at the top dividing it into six panes. It just looks like it's two long ones and two shallow ones. So we're going to cross over. What road is this? Uh, I don't know. That's the unmarked road. This is... Oh, this is... It says inbred DuPont Road. <laughs> I think we're Fair, here. Fairville Road. Fairville. <clears throat> the Ville Fair Road. With two L's. <laughs> With the wonderful... That's really uh, so this is creepy still, and eerie. Yeah, it's got a creepy light out tonight. So it's like the trees are really backlit by this kind of cloudy, um, almost diffused light background. Now we're at the crossroads. There is no man with a I Hate Turkey Burger t-shirt on. So I don't see our guy. And then uh, here's what is, I assume, a large elm full of Nazi spies. This one over here. You see something? I'm just wondering if we should start playing guitar or something to attract 
<laughs> Papa Legba. Steve Vai pops up. Steve. <laughs> with our luck, it would, you know, it would be uh, hey, Tiny not, Tim. You're not Ralph Would show Macho. up with a ukulele. Tiptoe through the tulips with me. We're going right. to be playing that. Now one. we're in the real Cosart road. It gets Now it suddenly gets very narrow and very overgrown on both sides. I'm noticing a lot of Osage orange trees, which are very thick and were used originally for like natural And now we're getting right? the graffiti on the road oh, and yeah. lots of blues, reds, whites, all kinds of stuff. I can't tell what any of it says. Stuff all over the pile, graffiti on the poles. So now we're in the the actual heart of it here. Some rich boy gang signs. White girls and gang signs. Gang signs. Infamous. Right. Tattnal doctors, you know. Oh, let's go out to Coastal Road. <laughs> Mr. Bottom Tooth. Perform lobotomies on each other. Right. Frontal? Sure. Gotta love full frontal lobotomies. All right, coming around the turn here. Lots of, what do you call all that ivy? You had a name for it that was, like, real. Ivy. Oh, you're talking about kudzu? <laughs> ivy, you I bastard. Don't, we don't got no kudzu out here. Kudzu. Oh. Oh, a vehicle coming. Oh, there's a vehicle. Oh, there's a car. Could it, could it be? Could it be a clan member in a pickup truck? It uh, appears to be some sort of an evil sedan. Packed full of high school Packed kids. Packed full of high school kids. <laughs> was that my nephew? That <laughs> could have been. H.A., was that you? Oh, God, if we could only park the truck, turn around, and uh, put Start on our cult outfits. our lights. Right. Oh, let's, you want to fuck with the kids? No. No, because nowadays kids will shoot you. Come down around this corner here. All just... All the trees are just draped with vines and ivy, so you can't even make out the shape of trees here. And it goes off to a to a rising hill, up off into a glowing distance. It looks like it really should have someone, you know, trying to call Narlathotep at the top of it. It is very creepy out here. If even I had any kind of recording, video recording device, it could pick up the 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 glow of the sky. It's really kind of neat. I should have brought my camera. You should have, but you know, I'm lucky I remembered this recorder. See, there's the doctor's tag, DRS. Oh, yeah, you see this DRS. Yeah. Oh, look, there's something under it. Rikey? Riney? Riley? Riley. And then a D name. Drep. And throats. Throats. Riley Deep throats. Sure. Oh. Oh. There it is. We're slow. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Bathroom wall graffiti on the trees. I think the, the the worst horrors of this road is what's done in back seats of cars parked along it. Alright, there's a big kind of cagey fenced off area. Otherwise probably known as someone's backyard. Uh, not lots of initials and name graffiti on the road. I'm giving a little bit of pause and space here, and then maybe we'll pick up some EVPs of dead clan members, inbred DuPonts, and cult members. Another curve, really sharp curve. Is that tree split or is that a vine going up? That's, That's a vine. vine. <clears throat> this is all new fencing, pretty new looking fencing. Uh, trees split are rail. growing towards the road. Yeah, and here the trees grow towards the road. Which... Hey, there's no, there's no telephone oh. wires or electric wires. Oh, here it comes. The car coming up behind us. Is it going to flash its lights? Are we going to be murdered? You, this could be it, kids. This could be it. Is a car behind us? I assume it's probably the evil sedan we saw full of teenagers. We would never be so lucky as to get attacked on this road. The funny part is we're the ones in a pickup truck. Right. Let me pull over and let these guys go by. Oh, let's see if they're scared to pass us. Watch, they want to pull in here. It is the same kids in the same sedan. Oh, we're the creepiest people out here. And a huge estate entrance. Wow, 
stone pillars and gates and split rail fencing. Kind of looks like where I grew up as a kid. We were the help. I think that is, I don't know if that's the coal house up there, if that's the stone house or... The, was 935 the way back cult there. house, from what I recall, is relatively small. The giant mansions we see are like the yeah. DuPont family. Now, where houses. the village was actually formed back here, I'm not really sure. It's somewhere back here. M. Night Shyamalan's the village, as I mentioned earlier. But, no, looks like uh, we're probably three quarters down this road now, and all we've seen is a car full of teenagers. But we did learn that Riley deep throats, and good for Riley. That's right. That takes a lot of control. And mm. up here, and this will eventually come out onto another main road, and that'll be it. We should be coming up on the tree. Oh, yeah, that, that tree. We still haven't even seen the, the remnants of the skull tree. road going off into some fields obviously used to uh, burn crosses and open. deformed if there's ponds. if there is not a no trespassing sign I might venture down that road can't that be assumed oh. do you see private property no trespassing no I do not we do not condone nor uh, suggest that you uh, wander onto private property uh, just so you know that, but uh, but if you do, for make the sure good you of science, drive. right? For the good of science, we will get arrested for your entertainment. We're going to stumble upon a uh, the summoning of Naralathotep. If the police are encountered and we are questioned, our sure. GPS led us down this road. Sure, it did. of course. Luckily, we're two old, fat, bearded men in a pickup truck. No, I don't know, officer. I heard there was a clan rally full of inbred DuPonts, and I, I had, that's something I had to see. You say get her done a lot. And get her done a lot. Right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a picture. Now that we're off the main road. Uh, <clears throat> all right, off we yeah. go. All right, here we are. Out in the field, driving through a field. driving through a field. Off Cosart Road, not far from the Colt House, because if you're going to find a Colt, it isn't going to be in the middle of a street. Oh, we got deer, a, look at all those a whole deer. bunch of deer and uh, coming upon what looks like an orchard. And there is a creepy-ass rag of some sort tossed over a pole. Does it smell like chloroform? What is this on the side here? I don't know. There's a bunch of buckets and a cart, I assume, for collecting stuff from the orchard. Maybe I should turn around before we drive into a meth lab or something. <laughs> this is all stuff from the orchard. Okay, that's a set for cooking things. Yeah. There was a camp oven, a large two-burner stand-up camp oven. And an old chair. And an old, old chair. Brush. I'm going to turn around before I get stuck. Was that a dwelling back there? Probably. Yeah, we're gonna die. At least they can't hang us from those trees. They're like five and a half feet tall. Soon they're like apple trees. They got their own little orchard. I'm not worried about getting attacked. I'm no. worried about getting stuck. Ow. You okay there, buddy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look at that. We're it's all four wheeling like now. Weird, like that cooking. Is a definitely a supplies. hobo camp. Yeah, it does look like a. What is all that there? I don't know, but I'm glad I almost look like camouflage netting. What's over the. Can you see? It's just a weird rag. I don't smell weed, so it's not yeah. like a pot grow. That's unfortunate. I mean, how, how would. What does weed smell like? I don't know. I wouldn't know. I assume it smells like grass. Happiness. All right, heading back down out of here. Now, this reminds me of Tennessee, because this is what some of the roads are like. We would need, uh, what's his name, Sasquatch. Snowman! Snowman, we'd we need, need snowman. snowman. Snowman is this this really cool guy in 
friends with Dennis and I in Tennessee. Snowman is needed for this adventure. He is. Alright, heading back out to Cossart Road. and uh, I think we can pretty much say that uh, there are no clan members, cult members, or inbred DuPonts currently patrolling Cossart Road. Hey, do you think if they were trying to appeal to a demon and they were sacrificing babies, maybe it was Moloch? I think it was Mrs. Carl. Mrs. Clayley. Mrs. Clayley was in the room. So from Dennis and I, thank you for tuning in tonight. We hope you have a great Halloween. And uh, hope you had a good time with this episode because I know we did. And uh, we'll see you on the other side, everyone. Good night. Oh, the things we do for you guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. It was it was a mess. Dennis and I are a mess. We really shouldn't be allowed out in public, but uh, most of you already know that. So I hope you had a good time. Hope you have a great Halloween. Stay safe. Check your candy and uh, check your Xanax because apparently that's bad for you too. Have a good night, everyone.